Yeah, the uh, the so part of America. Doing there. The I think yeah. the one part of America where everybody is really happy and really nice all the time. Puerto yeah. Rico, <laughs> and they don't give a they don't give a shit about anything at all. It's very interesting. I had a couple discussions there, but with uh, with some locals about the whole you know statehood versus non statehood thing because you'll never find a Puerto Rican that says. Hey, we're American. They're always going to say that they're Puerto Rican. And so it was just an interesting thought to me in terms of having that conversation on statehood versus non-statehood, the, how they're treated as almost like a, a colony almost of the United States where they don't, if you move from um, the United States and you retire to Puerto Rico, you, your social security benefits get suspended. Your Medicare gets suspended. What? Uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. He said there's all kinds of weird, weird, weird things. And that Puerto Ricans, if they travel to the United States, they can vote in the U.S. elections, but they can't vote from Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is <laughs> obvious. It's, it's so many weird, weird things. And it's like, make the decision. Do you want them to be a state, um, a part of the U.S. or not? And he said it's very politically driven. Honestly, he said... The reason is that because Puerto Rico is such a liberal place that basically the Republicans don't want it to become a state because they know those electoral votes will always go blue pretty yeah. much. And so they're they're It's it's interesting because they are that it's not even that true because it's a very religious place as well. So it's just about how you run your campaigns. But it's very interesting that. The people out there really think it's politically motivated and the Republicans just don't want another blue state. <laughs> it would be interesting because it would completely shift the balance, right? Going from 50 to 51 states, I think, is a big difference because now even the VP who would get called in to vote on a tie in the Senate would no longer be required, right? Well, I guess they would have two senators, yeah. so you'd still have that issue because it's an even number. Well, it'd be 52 if you had Virgin Islands. Virgin no, Islands you is had in the Virgin same Islands too. as Puerto Rico. It's the same scenario. Yeah, it'll be 52. Yeah. The, and th- there's also, they're tax havens. Like Puerto Rico has a ton of crypto people there. Like the Paul brothers live in Puerto Rico, bro, because it's way good for their taxes. So you, yeah, they technically live there, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I th- and I think they're there. I think you have to live there, what? six months or something so they must be there six, six months, months in one day there. yeah do the do yeah. the thing but i mean like it's not it's it's a beautiful place bro it's not a bad i like it's not a bad idea at all to stand up there yeah it's a beautiful place it's laid back um there's crime like there is everywhere but it's mostly petty crime you know yeah. so and obviously any any city that's a major tourist city like that can get annoying if you're a local so there's that element of it, but you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's definitely a great place. I'm glad I visited. I haven't been there yet. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's nice overall, um, but it's always interesting to see and go to these places that are essentially like colonies and say, <laughs> and, and see how they feel about their relationship. This isn't just the U S and Puerto Rico, but like the Dutch Antilles, all those places is just such a unique, you know, the British Virgin islands too. It's such a unique concept to have these places that are still kind of under colonial rule, but aren't cruelly considered states. They were their own, but yeah. they're not considered state. It's bizarre, so, bro. And did you get a chance to uh, watch the, um, watch any of the basketball games while you were down there? Yeah, I caught them all. Basketball is big in Puerto Rico. Uh, obviously they get all the U S U S channels as well. So, uh, I find myself, uh, at night watching, watching all the games. Yeah. It's a crazy week, crazy week in the NBA for us, honestly. Like, I mean, we saw, I think we all knew the Lakers were not going to be able to beat the Nuggets. I think after, after the first game, I don't think a lot of people thought it would be a sweep because it was a very close game one, a very weird game one. And every game was, was close, but no cigar for the Lakers. And I think you can chalk that up to just a pure talent difference. It's just what you saw play out on the court is that Denver was the better team. They won every game. And despite, you know, LeBron's last best effort in that, in that fourth game just wasn't enough to get them over the top. And I think you gotta, you gotta show credit to Jokic. Like he's unbelievable dude. And I think for me, like I have not, I've not really watched a ton of Denver basketball because I find it to be kind of boring a little bit uh, because it's so good. And uh, watching Jokic like do that Larry Bird type shot where he puts the ball behind his head and just throws it up into the sky and just drains it anytime he's in trouble. It's like, man, this guy, he's unguardable. He's got incredible basketball IQ. The way he moves with the ball and without the ball are incredible. And he gets all his teammates going and he always defers credit. Like that's what a leader looks like. And, you know, it, it was it was beautiful basketball. Like the De- the Denver Nuggets deserve a lot of credit that they're not getting in media. Yeah. And we can thank one LeBron James for that, um, for the lack of attention on Denver. Um, and I'm sure the coaches and the, the team over in Denver uh, enjoys that. But I think to only give the credit to Jokic also kind of um, it's important to highlight both um, the rest of the teammates. Jamal Murray is an unbelievable finisher. He is, he is the guy that they go to in the clutch. Um, And then in addition to that, um, the way that Michael Malone has developed and coached this team and built the pieces around Jokic um, in the front office, this is what the reward is for a superstar actually staying in the market and trusting the front office, it doesn't matter whether you're in Denver or whether you're in Miami, these big markets, you don't necessarily have to build there. And Giannis showed this a couple of years ago as well, is that if you have the right GM and the right ownership, they will recognize the talents of their superstar and build the right team around them. And it's very refreshing to see this type of team development. And same thing with Boston, the way that Boston team is developed, because I really be- stopped enjoying the NBA as much when these super teams started to get formed. Um, and I think it's just refreshing to see that that's not the only course. Um, and then also to see a team like Denver kind of 
really make that statement against kind of a poster child for major market teams doing whatever you need, being able to attract any free agent you want, build any team you want, uh, do whatever you need to do to win a championship, to sweep them um, was pretty significant. Um, But obviously the storyline always in any series involving LeBron James is going to be LeBron James. And whether you like it or dislike, it was very obvious what he was thinking strategically in his head by saying that, you know, he's got to think about his future. One, it took the it took the emphasis off of the fact that he just got swept um, in a finals and how that impacts the GOAT or even the conversation about the GOAT versus non-GOAT. The storyline completely became about is he going to stay or is he going to go, is he retiring or is he going to go to another team, demand a trade. The poor Denver Nuggets don't even give a moment of attention um, for 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 railroading them out of the playoffs uh, in the fashion that they did <laughs> before the storyline becomes LeBron James. It's, it's brilliant when you look at media when you look at media manipulation and how to do it. LeBron really knows how to do that, and I think there's twofold things here. One is take the attention off of himself or the failure, um, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it a failure, but getting swept is a as a GOAT candidate is pretty significant. Um, and then the second thing is that he wanted to put the Lakers on notice, right? Because this happens every time. It happened in Cleveland when LeBron finally meets a team that he knows he can't beat. He's going to figure out a way to beat them. And if that means that he's got to get traded to the Warriors, he's not He's not playing basketball just to play basketball. He's playing to try to get to that GOAT situation. And he thought he was going to do it once they traded for Anthony Davis. He thought that it was going to be easy breezy for him and Anthony Davis to coast to a couple more championships. The last couple of years have shown that is not the case. So it's very interesting. It's clear that this is, it's a twofold play. Take the attention off of him and then also put the attention on him and put his team on notice. That's, that's my takeaway from it. Yeah, I think I think that's really well said, and you know, I I think you've you've really well you know well rounded out the conversation about LeBron. So I wanted to point it at a couple of the Nuggets players because I do think like it would be nice uh, for us to just take that responsibility of you know talking about the things that should be talked about. Um, I want to talk about KCP, bro, because I was really impressed with not only like his play but his growth from the time even a few years back in the bubble when he was a Laker. And I, I'm just so impressed with KCP when he got signed uh, over there. Everyone thought it was a waste of money and there was a lot of controversy around it because he was signed with clutch. Right. And like the clutch athletes get paid really well. Um, I think he got signed to LA and then traded over or something like that. But my, my thing with him is that, he played like a dog on defense the whole series. He was in everyone's faces and he made such a great impact on the offensive side of the uh, side of the game. Like KCP is a really, really impressive player to me. And I, I just wanted to get, um, you know, a sense, um, you know, a sense from you on what you thought about KCP. Yeah. Um, as far as KCP, I think what's being underappreciated isn't, He's always been a great defensive player, but what he did in game four of that series is he gave the team a moment when, you know, Jokic was in foul trouble. 
Um, Jamal Murray, Murray was getting locked down. KCP really was the critical player in a stretch of that game um, that got the team to win. And that's the importance of having depth and having role players that can step up to the plate when a key player or multiple key players are struggling. Um, and I think that experience that he's had playing with the Lakers and with, with LeBron and just being a seasoned vet uh, showed through. And I think it was critical. I think Jokic gave him his credit as he always does. Um, but at the start of that third quarter, it was really KCP who put the team on his back. Yeah. And what did, what did you think about Aaron Gordon? Cause I thought he also had an incredible performance the whole series, especially his physicality, his rebounding, the way he operates in the paint as the role guy when he needs to be, or as a dump off pass for Jokic, when he gets doubled, he knows his role perfectly. And without Aaron Gordon, that, that Nuggets team is a completely different team. Um, down in the paint. What did you think about his performance? Honestly, I mean, Aaron Gordon, when that trade was made a few years ago, I think three seasons ago, um, and he was given the, the, the money that he was given, people were questioning um, whether or not Aaron Gordon was ever going to reach um, the potential because I think he was like the number two draft pick in that draft that Jokic was like in, in the 40s. I forget exactly, like 38 or 40th pick. Um, so the expectations on for Aaron Gordon in Orlando uh, didn't he didn't live up to them, and that's why they traded him. But again, the Nuggets you have to credit the Nuggets front office. They recognize the talent that blends well with Jokic's talent, a guy that can get to the rim um, and, and and make plays and also give you hustle and heart um, that Jokic knows Jokic and and. Murray know how to get the ball to. Um, and then the defensive presence as well. Again, just just credit where credit is due um, in this situation with KCP. Yeah. And and Gordon there as well. Um, you know, jumping to the other side, we had um, Celtics Heat. Celtics actually won game four, which was a surprise. And uh, there is an interesting development for game five of this series, which is that Gabe Vincent seems to be out on an ankle injury that he got last game. Uh, this does give the Celtics a new breath of life in an interesting way. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, I feel like the outcome of the series will be any different because that 3-0, you know, they say it's never been done before. Um, it, that's a tough deficit to overcome. I do appreciate that the Celtics are giving it a real fight and putting in some work in this series. But, um, you know, do you think they have it in them? I mean, you can't count this team out simply because Miami is playing off of heart and they've been the defensive pressure and offensive shooting has been out of this world. Right. You think there at some point um, it would come back, you know, to the mean. And I mean, 60 percent three point shooting, 60 plus percent three point shooting as a team, that defensive pressure that's required and then. The amount of pressure that's on Jimmy Butler without kind of a sec, a true second fiddle. All of these guys are playing way above um, their, the level that they played all season. And also, most of them have not been in a situation like this before. So you take those factors in and you say, okay, Boston on the other side, they made it to the finals last year. They've had their back against the wall. It always seems like this is a team that wakes up when the challenge is insurmountable. They don't 
know how to play when with a lead. They know how to play from behind. So if they get game five, you know, I think it's very critical that the, the Miami Heat figure out a way to cr- try to close the Celtics out in Boston. Because if they get to, they rattle off two in a row and they go back to Miami with Gabe Vincent still out of the series, you know, the talent disparity is there. It's just, if, if Miami continues to play the way they did in the first three games, no. But if Miami comes back to the play that got them into the eighth seed um, and not a number one or number two seed, like, very easily could happen. I'm not saying I put the odds at, at not zero. It's never happened before, but I'm putting the odds at 15 to 20% here. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a definite possibility with the injuries, especially that Miami's suffering. And, and I agree with you, like, um, they're, they're playing at a level we, we just haven't seen all season. So if this is the new norm, that's great for them. Um, I also have been keeping an eye on Tyler Harrow, and it looks like he just got cleared to resume basketball activities, which doesn't mean he's ready to play, but it does mean he is able to travel with the team, practice with the team, do things like that which first of all is nuts. I did not know you could heal a hand that quickly. But second of all, what does that mean for this Heat team? Like my overall view in this is that the Celtics extending this series, if they take it to say six, could be one of the best things possible for the Heat team if they are to go to the finals. Because if they go with a healthy Tyler Harrow who can play in a game one, that's a different Heat team than this banged up Heat team winning tonight and going right to the finals in, you know, three days. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. You know, we'll see what his conditioning is like. He's been out for a while. If he can immediately come back and make an impact. Um, but yeah, the, the, the heat with, with Tyler hero and a healthy Kevin love are, are right there. You know what I mean? And they still do have players. It's just, you know, Gabe Vincent is a huge loss on both sides of the ball, the way he's been playing. Um, it's tough, you know, and, and the truth is, like, you know, the way that the, the new guys have been playing with the Heat, you wonder if, if, if Tyler Hero is going to continue to be on the team going to next year or if the astute front office with Pat Riley says, hey, here's an opportunity to trade a valuable player that we can get some more assets back because we found some talents that can fill that role. It's going to be very interesting because – I don't think Tyler Hero, um, up to this point in his career, we saw flashes his rookie year, and he played really well this year. But I don't know if he fits personality-wise with this Heat team um, the way these other guys do, the lunch pail kind of mentality. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with you. I think it would be a smart move for the front office to trade him for somebody to compliment Bam. And I, I also have to shout out Zeller, He's been just like way more effective than I thought he would be this entire playoffs. Just the heat bench specifically has been outscoring their opponents significantly in bench minutes. Um, I think having a quality big, another quality big on their roster could really make an impact for this heat team because they have a great ball handler. K love is good, but he's not banging in the paint the same way he used to. He's really more of a stretch um, who's, who's, you know, going to make a lot of his points on the perimeter. He's going to get you rebounds for sure, but he's not going to last the whole game down there. Uh, I just, I love what this heat team has in assets. And I, I think 
with the with the maturation of a Gabe Vincent, you have the opportunity to dump what could be potentially a, a super large future contract with Harrow and get back some young talent that can really piece in well. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Maybe trade him for LeBron James, bring him back to Miami. I know. I don't think LeBron would do it though. I think he's got beef still with Pat Riley. LeBron James. <laughs> so uh, we were we were both talking about um, some you know sports adjacent news with the TV show Ted Lasso, which we both love, and uh, we were talking about some of the the narratives and headlines in season three of that show. And uh, you know, are you are you ready to jump into that? V, did you have anything about basketball related you want to mention? Or you or you want to jump in? Uh, nothing else basketball, basketball related. It's always exciting to hear, hear what's going on in basketball. One thing that I did want to take note of, um, as Ohio sports fans is that, um, the legendary Jim Brown, uh, passed away, uh, this past week. So definitely RIP to a legend. One thing, you know, kind of what my, my thoughts on it have always been as a Browns fan, it's almost insufferable what we have to deal with, but Almost every conversation, one thing you were able to say is that, you know, but Jim Brown played for the Browns, you know, and that's that's a universal thing for football fans everywhere. Uh, community leader, a lot of the things that he did outside of the football field during the civil rights movement um, was also very impactful. Definitely lost a living living legend. So I just want to take a note of that before we moved on to the next topic. Yeah, good call out, man. Um R.I.P. to Jim Brown. And uh, jumping into the Ted Lasso segment. So here's a context, guys. We, me and V were talking because we both love this show and the characters are incredibly well-developed. The thoroughness of the writing is so good. The way that they build story arcs is so good. And when season three started, we were very, very bummed out. And so, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen season three just going to give that to you right now so pause here if um if you haven't seen that you don't want the spoilers but season three starts and keely who you know has been this like positioned as this very desirable female in the show starts out dating the soccer star switches to another soccer star out of the blue becomes bi and starts dating this venture capitalist that they bring in as a character who's somehow kind of semi-involved in financing her firm but somehow not really it's kind of weird it's vague and it just seems like such a force of an lgbt storyline in the narrative while at the same time there's a narrative built with one of the soccer players named colin that he is gay and they build it very thoroughly and slowly through the whole season and they build it up until a point where he has to reckon with his team captain and one of his best friends finding this out, getting upset. You're not really understanding where the tension is, but when they resolve it, when they kind of have the conversation they need to have, it fills your heart with just joy for both players, for the one coming out and for the one supporting the one coming out and for the you know kind of increased trust that comes between them as a result of this. And I think it showed us when a LGBT storyline can be integrated into the script, the organic way versus when it's the forced way. And I think like it ties really well into the societal conversation around 
you know, specifically Disney, specifically Hollywood, trying to insert LGBT storylines in every single plot. And I think this season shows you very, very nicely the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. Yeah, that was kind of the, the, the takeaway from that. You know, obviously this isn't a conversation around representation or views on these things. It's simply that, you know, forcing anything um, usually does not have a positive impact, right, in the overall goal of trying to make something accepted. It is by giving context like they did with Colin's story arc. The other thing, it's not just him and his teammate, but the way that Ted handled it in the locker room, the indifference that the players, the rest of the team had it when it, when it, when it was revealed, while also acknowledging in Ted's speech, acknowledging that it is difficult. It's still a difficult thing for anyone um, who is who who was who becomes aware that that is where they stand, especially within the athlete community, uh, male athlete community specifically. It is more readily accepted in the female athlete community, I think, overall. Um, but I think that that was very well done. Now. The issue that we have and all Ted Lasso fans have is the way that Keeley's storyline was done because because the approach was lazy, because there was no storyline development, because this character came out of nowhere and didn't really have any measurable impact on the show outside of with the Keeley character. And then also the kind of like laziness with which it was approached, it almost cheapens the idea for a lesbian female of, oh, it, okay, here's a straight lady who just suddenly becomes gay off of a whim. It basically emphasizes that storyline that it's a result of rejection from two males that she's going to the, the female side. And even if that part of it was developed, right, the issues that females in society deal with with men not treating them properly, not treating them with respect or not giving them the the level of understanding that they may get from a female, even if they developed that part of the storyline, it would have been interesting. But for the first six episodes, we didn't really hear anything about soccer. Keeley became the center point of the story. And Colin's story was even marginalized a little bit, was there. But throughout, you saw the disparity between the two storylines and how they were developed. And it was very clear that this was a pressurized situation. Hey, you need to create this story arc in this story. And I think that that really cheapens, you know, the impact of acceptance in, in society that people in this community are trying to trying to achieve. Yeah. That's so well said. It's so well said because the way that the storyline was inserted does actually harm the, you know, the LGBT intention as well, right? Is if you're trying to accurately portray the experience, you need to accurately portray the experience and not shoehorn it in as like a as like a prop in your in your writing just to check off another box of, you know, things that you want to accomplish. And I think like, you know, there's been all sorts of conversation about uh, race-related casting, gender-related casting, all sorts of stuff like that this year. And I think this this was an example of when you do it right and wrong side-by-side side in the same TV show. And I think that's what makes it so powerful and so so obvious to us when we were watching it was like, 
okay, why does this part of the plot not feel like we're watching the same show anymore? Because this is a show with incredible attention to detail since episode one. So that, to your point, V, like, I think that's what made it feel so inauthentic as a viewer is that there was nothing about that plot line with Keeley this season that fits with anything the show has done from the beginning of the show. And the way that they resolve it, she just randomly hooks up with her ex again. And that's how they end it. So what the fuck just happened with her character for the last, you know, eight, 10 episodes we've been watching, right? I think it's, it, it's disappointing as a viewer because it doesn't serve any of the characters and it also disgraces the initiative. Yeah. And I also think it's, it's, it's unfortunate too, that this whole idea of representation um, essentially gets all, all grouped in together. Right. So what's happening is that, you know, you they just are like, okay, we're going to either have a gay character or minority character. True representation comes in when you don't when you hire someone based on their talent. Right. That's what true representation is. And you don't differentiate when you start forcing things like you're forcing a gay cast member or a gay storyline or a minority storyline it comes across inauthentically to the audience. And again, it doesn't have the right impact. The truth is that society has representation of a wide range of characters. And what I find in TV and entertainment, you know, it's very stereotypical, very stereotypical, you know, Indian, Indian actors get cast in the same similar types of roles, you know, LGBTQ characters get cast in the same type of roles. You know, women get cast in the same type of roles. And it's like they almost, like you said, do it to check a box versus actually trying um, trying to help society grow and accept that there are so many different types of people and it doesn't matter what you are, whatever your discomfort with someone else. It, it's, it should be to make them more, make people more comfortable with how society is not more uncomfortable than they actually are. If that's the goal of that should be the goal of representation. I don't know if I'm speaking well, and quite frankly, this is a very difficult topic to actually tackle. And I'll highlight that as well, because you don't, because of the way that we live in society is it's like, are you good? You have to phrase everything very thoughtfully to make sure, even if you're intent and you know, you're not saying anything incorrectly, the fear of offending someone, Right. By misspeaking or or saying something that can be put in a soundbite is another thing is like that's the frustrating thing is I don't think that these are conversations anymore. We can't have conversations. It's either you are here or you're there. And that's what's leading to cancel culture. That's leading to a lot of things. But this is a very valuable conversation to have specifically within this show. Um, that I, I hope is not received in that way because that's not the intent of our conversation at all. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was one other situation that, you know, is, is similar to this, but different. Um, and it involved Jada Pinkett Smith as much drama tends to involve. And um, it involved this Cleopatra documentary she just made for Netflix that just came out a week or two ago. And, in this documentary, it's not a biopic. It's a documentary that is intended to be as historically accurate as possible. That's that's the goal of the documentary. Um, but 
the woman that she had cast to play Cleopatra looks nothing like Cleopatra looked. And the Egyptian government was furious about this. And they actually sought to ban the documentary from their country because they were so upset that that she was projecting what she thought Cleopatra should look like. And when she was asked about it, she just said, I want my daughter to watch Black Queens on TV. And I think that there's this line where if you say you're doing a biopic, nobody cares. Do whatever you want, you know, to tell a story however you want. But if you are telling people that this is historically accurate and then you're portraying it in a way that's not historically accurate, you're lying to people. And especially when you're portraying the culture of a completely different country, a completely different type of people than you're a part of, I think this idea of representation like you're talking about could be misconstrued to mean like you like you don't have the power. Well, you, you can do whatever you want, but you don't have the ability to paint other people's stories and history the way you want to. And I think that's, that's the tough part about all of this is that I think the the storyline, you think about the storyline in Ted Lasso, like how could somebody who's actually from the LGBT community have been involved in the Keeley storyline? It's not possible. It's straight writers writing a gay storyline. And kind Mm -hmm. of the same thing when I think about the Jada Pinkett Smith scenario is that she's just projecting her desire to put more black women in power on a historical event with a, you know, very famously inbred leader from a Greek family that had particularly light skin and green eyes. This is like a well-recorded fact. And you just you, you just get into these weird spots where it's like, what is the point? What's the point of shoehorning these types of ideals in? Like, to your point, V, you lose, you lose what real inclusiveness is, which is like not even considering that and just approaching things in the way that serves the piece of art the most. So if you're doing something historically accurate, paint it historically accurate. If you're doing something that's, you know, a minority storyline... Get a minority to write the storyline who's lived that experience and have it actually portrayed appropriately to, you know, the real life version of it instead of, you know, like I think one of the things that, um, you know, it was was a joke. But, you know, one of the things that somebody said um, that we know about the uh, Ted Lasso storyline was like, this is the least believable lesbian couple I've ever seen because they both look like, you know, like. They're, they're dressed and act in, in, you know, traditionally very, very straight ways. They're positioned as like more sexualized figures. And we talked about this in the show. There's an episode where they show back to back Keely and her partner in bed and they're both in lingerie. The immediate next scene and it's sexual. They're like making out. And the immediate next scene is Keely is uh, Nate and his partner, who's a female, it's a heterosexual couple, and they show nothing sexual. It's very plain. They barely peck on the lips. It's a very, very different portrayal. And so what is with the sexualization of two girls together? It seems like a straight man wrote that plot. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot to unpackage, unpackage here with this conversation about Hollywood. And I think, you know, it's it's very deep. Like you mentioned the, the Cleopatra thing. I think 
There's something specifically of colorism in in the history of of cinema, Hollywood, and television. From you know when you look back at history, like true lack of representation, where they literally would cast white people in blackface. So some of these things that happen um, within the Cleopatra scene, that's kind of the reaction and response to those things. Is that historical kind of degradation that white cinema and American cinema has done to minorities in addition to they did this with Indian characters too. They would have Indian characters, white actors play Indians, you know, famously Ben Kingsley. He is not, he is not Indian, um, but they had him play Gandhi. Um, in addition to the same thing, brown face guys with white guys with turbans and brown face. These things kind of have been a historical issue um, for people of color. And therefore there's been a reaction in terms of, okay, since you guys don't want to represent us, then when we get the opportunity and control of a narrative, we're going to let you know how that feels sometimes. Right. Um, regardless of that, I agree. Like you, if you're making a historically relevant or historical piece, that's supposed to be a documentary style or accurate to the facts, then you've got to cast somebody that looks like that the same way you're not supposed to cast a white man in blackface acting in, in a very, in a very stereotypical way, often, um, you know, representing a black American, you also should not have somebody who's non-Egyptian representing an Egyptian storyline in which that's accurate. So I agree with you there. I'm just kind of giving it the historical perspective. And I also think, there is another storyline. We're going to we might get canceled here uh, today, but it's OK, <laughs> because I think the conversation that we're having is very fair. And it's not and it's 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 looking at this thing through the lens of objectivity and how do we get to a positive place. But that's the other thing. A lot of minorities have been bothered by the acceleration of the representation of the LGBTQ community in such a like non-resistant fashion versus the struggles that everybody else has faced. You know, it's the same thing. It's not, it's not just black Americans, Jewish Americans have dealt with it. Italian Americans had very, a lot of trouble breaking into cinema in the past. Um, but overall it's to them, it's like, okay, I feel like a lot of times in these movies, if they check the LGBTQ box, they're like, oh, we don't need to. That's our minority representation. And I think that's the other thing that's kind of interesting here is the dynamics within different minority cultures of this shit in Hollywood is not easy. It's it's got a history of racism. It's got a history of, of prejudice against societies and cultures to suddenly see. And I'm not you know, I'm obviously not saying that the struggle for the LGBTQ community isn't the same, but it's almost when you look at the numbers, it's you're seeing more and more of that representation and less and less minority representation. It's almost like it's one or the other. And that's that bothers me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a really good point. And, you know, overall, like I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there is there's a lot that people are dealing with right now. And that's what we're experiencing is like the process of healing across, you know, so many different cultures. But I think the thing that we can all agree on is that nobody wants forced portrayals just for the sake of making a political statement. 
all anybody wants is good products and good media that's enjoyable, that's nice, that's well done, and makes them feel good and distracts them from their days if that's what they're looking for. But that that's it. You know, we're not looking to Hollywood to solve all of our problems. We're not looking to it to make statements. And I think for the most part, we don't feel that Hollywood is representative of the rest of the world. It's it's in fact very detached from reality. And you know, the more people like that try to drive the narrative, the less grounded in reality that narrative will be. And so I think, you know, I, I agree with you. And I think the real solution to this will happen in time, but it's the emergence of things like Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta and the emergence of, you know, different kind of decentralized um, media opportunities and production opportunities, podcasts, you know, all, all the other things that are happening right now. That's what's allowing these voices to be heard. And, you know, for you and I, like as brown voices, like, yeah, it's it's there's no there's no you know place where we're going to be given a platform unless we create our own. And that's just kind of the nature of it. Like you look at um, the the beat writer Shams, right? And the NBA side, he's just gotten on a podcast. He's starting to get pretty famous now, but he built that shit on his own by just being ahead of everybody else for a number of years. And it's it's the classic, you know you got to be the best at it before people are willing to give you that shot. And I think in general, like you're starting to see the paradigm shift where because of all the new tech, because of all the opportunity, all, all sorts of people have a voice and a platform. And the question is, do you use that platform to strike back at people or views that you felt oppressed by? Or do you use that platform to set the tone for what things should be like the next generation of media? And, you know, I think that's really all it boils down to. And obviously a lot of people are hurt from, you know, the past and the things that, that they've grown up seeing. Yeah. I mean, and I think you make a very good point. I mean, it's, 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 we don't get anywhere by dividing and creating these these narratives also within communities of like why 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 is this group getting more attention than this group like those things don't help this scenario or the situation i'm all for having diverse cast because we live in america it's a diverse place you know it's not for for many years we saw you know cast that did not represent what america is and they continue to kind of foster those divisive tendencies for as many different groups of cultures and cultures that are in America. It's very surprising and amazing to see how divided we still are, despite all the progress that we've made and how much fear there is between groups. Right. That's the other part of it. And I feel like sometimes what happens is the the flames are fanned by creating kind of these divisive kind of storylines. And like you said, representation is very important and you've got to do it on your own. If you want your voice to be heard and you want your culture to be heard, you have to create a way Two things. One, it has to be relevant and, 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 and be, and you have to, you have to be able to have uh, conversations and you need to be able to have authentic conversations. And you also need to be able to see storylines like Colin's storyline in Ted Lasso to really get an understanding and empathize, right? Like the goal for any group is to get people who do not look like them, who do not feel like them, to empathize with what they go through so that it makes them understand that perspective to say, you know what, 
my my prejudices and my thoughts on 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 this lifestyle or this race or whatever it is, I need to question those. That's how you question them, right? You don't question. You don't get progress by forcing things that aren't even representative of what's happening in society in any real way. And and like you said, the reason we had this conversation is because Ted Lasso gave us the opportunity to have this conversation in a way um, that's meaningful. And hopefully our audience um, also understands understands the perspective here um, on, on what we're saying. And, you know, obviously, how do we get to a point where our society is representative because we're facing these same issues, not just with Hollywood, but in social media, these, these, these filtered models, like there's a lot of depression and psychological issues that are being developed because of how we're forced to perceive things in unnatural ways. Yeah. Really well said, really well said. It's all about authenticity at the end of the day. And that's, I think that's the thread here is that we're looking for authentic representation, not just representation, but authentic, real representation. And when something is authentic, it's human. So everybody can relate. And the reason why people get up in arms is it's not because of authentic representation. No one's ever gotten upset about authentic representation. It's always been inauthentic, forced representation that makes people upset. And I, you know, I think that it kind of puts us puts us at the end of this here. And um, yeah, as always, we want to remind you to stay moving. Be you. You as fly. If you have anything you want to add to the conversation, tweet us, DM us. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think we should talk about. And tell us if we were wrong about anything or if you feel like we need to change, change the uh, perspective here. Uh,